If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I'm going to ask you to pull it out and go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. I guess if I'm going to do that, I actually need my Bible in my hand, don't I? Romans chapter 6. Peter, did you happen to have an idea of what's going on with Sophie? She's doing better? Okay. Okay, we'll go with that. She's doing better. Romans chapter 6, I want to take you into that and uh, pray with you in just a minute before we step in. But I also want to give you a little um, update on the building. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, and I asked you to be in prayer about that. Um, if you're new to New Hope, we've been raising funds to build a new building. God continues to grow the church, and um, every quarter we continue to see an increase in overall attendance for this quarter from the quarter before, and it just keeps ramping up, which is a great thing, right? Okay, unless you really want the church to stay small, um, maybe you're not so much of a fond of, the, fond of the fact that it's growing, but God is really blessing and we're examining what is our strategy for moving forward, how do we respond to this. Um, um, if we can't build sooner, do we add a fourth service? And um, while that may be something we don't want to have to do, we may have to do that um, in order just to respond to what God is doing among us. We, we only have limited amount of parking space and a limited amount of seats. So three services is meeting the need, but maybe we're going to have to go to a fourth one. So here's the update for you. Um, when we set the goal back in November uh, and shared with you the building plans, we presented to you that it was going to be somewhere between five and a half to six million dollars for that project of the design that we presented. And then by February, we saw that uh, from 112 families or so far, commitments have been made to the tune of about $2.5 million. And recognizing this is a, a three-year campaign, more individuals are joining, and some are giving without filling out pledge cards, which is totally fine. You can do that. So we've seen about a million dollars in cash, just a little bit over that, come in already. And so God is obviously pointing us in that direction. Things are moving in the right way. However, we may have less funds to work with than what we originally anticipated. So in February, um, we put together a team. If you, if you think nothing's been going on, this is what's been going on behind the scenes. There's a building planning team. We call them the BPT for short. So if you hear that phrase around here, you know what I'm talking about. So that BPT has been meeting with architects and interviewing and trying to come up with a strategy of what's the best design given the amount of resources we may have to work with when it comes time to put shovels in the ground. That team is still interviewing and they have come together with what they believe could work as a plan and we want to share the drawings with you. Not today, but we'll do that relatively soon. My desire to share this information with you today is that you're caught up to speed where we're at. And when you see the, the new plans, they won't catch you by surprise, but rather we're all on the same page so we know how to pray more accurately. So we want to ask God to continue to release more funds so that we can build the building. We know we need to do that. It's just a matter of when. What is his timing? And so that's what I'm sharing with you this morning. I want you to be aware we're continuing to work behind the scenes, advancing what we know we need to do, because I'm confident, I'm sure you are, God has many people in the Metro Lansing area that are going to come to Christ through the work of New Hope. Do you believe that? I believe that too. He's evidencing that. He's doing that. We get to watch individuals get baptized this morning. That's just part of that evidence of new life. So I'm excited to go into Romans 6 with you. I'm going to teach relatively short this morning because of the baptism, but I'm just going to give you a heads up. We're going to do about two verses, all right? Let's pray together before we do that. Father, we lift up this passage that we're about to examine, and thank you for the uh, privilege of, as a family, getting together like this. 
Those who are even brand new to the church can be part of this family, Father. And I thank You how You're growing us in You. I pray that You would use Romans 6, especially these verses in 5, 6, and 7, to speak individually to us. Maybe even somebody who's watching on live stream right now, God, needs to hear specifically what You want communicated. So, Father, I pray that through the power of Your Holy Spirit, You would use this, touch us where we need to be, Allow the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and guide as you promised that he is. So Father, we put ourselves in this place where we're surrendered to you. Our hearts are open and we're ready to hear from you. So God, we ask that you would speak now. And we ask that you would do this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps if you've been part of the study of Romans over the last uh, number of weeks, you've noticed that Paul kind of started out chapter 6 with a really huge question. And the question they laid out there was, if you belong to Jesus, why would you want to continue in sin? Now, he takes the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 to essentially answer that question that you find in verse 1. How can we continue in sin? That, that's his response, which is chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. In order to kind of help you understand where I'm going with this, I'm going to give you an anchor verse to back up what we're going to examine. It comes from Galatians, so you'll see it on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along with the words on the screen. It says this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, last week we were in verse 3, and Paul was talking about being baptized with the death of Jesus. We were baptized into his death. And I told you he's stating a historical fact, looking back on the time when Jesus was on the cross, and he said, there's something that happened here, it's real. Now he's using very similar language here when he begins talking about being crucified with Christ. In your notes this morning, you find about four Greek words, and the first one that you find listed is also up on the screen, and it's this word for crucified. But why I want to draw it to your attention is what it meant to Paul. When he uses this particular word, sistruo, He's talking about somebody who's impaled. It's very graphic language. If you live in the first century and you watch Rome execute people, which was common knowledge among the individuals of the first century, this word is very visceral. He's using it intentionally. We don't see crucifixion so much anymore. Uh, maybe in the Middle East, we know that ISIS crucified Christians recently. But as a common form of life, it's not familiar to us for Paul, it was very common to see individuals crucified, and he purposefully chose this language about being impaled by saying to us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, something happened to you. You died with Jesus. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, you became like him when you said, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I believe that you're my Savior. Forgive me. Take away my sin. I want to die to that. Something happened, Paul says, historically. Another historical fact comes out of verse 4. and You'll see this on the screen as well. He says this, Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now here's the logic. Not only did something happen if you believe in Jesus, not only are we dead to sin, he says the logical outcome of that is we're buried with Him. And a burial certifies the reality of death. We get that imagery in baptism today. When someone is lowered into the water, 
These three individuals that you'll watch in this particular service are saying, I have died to that old way of life. I want the new life. So they'll be lowered into the water and the burial certifies the reality of the death. That's what baptism portrays. But it does something else. It, if you're dead, you've got no hope apart from God's intervention. Because if you've been lowered into the ground, somebody's going to put the dirt over you because we don't bury alive people, we bury dead people. So apart from God's intervention, new life is absolutely impossible. So we're going to watch individuals who are going to be lowered into the water, and if Gary does his job right, they're going to come back up out of the water, right? Okay? Because we don't want to leave them in the bottom of the tank because what we're watching is new life according to what Scripture is describing. This one who's being raised. So the death has its purpose. Praise God, there's something beyond the death. There's something further. Because Jesus' death was followed by resurrection. So just as Jesus' death was followed by resurrection, our death to sin is followed by being raised to new life. So that's his argument in verse 4. So we too, we too might walk in newness of life. You know what that verse is telling you? You see just that section on the screen? Maybe you look at it in your Bible. So we too might walk in newness of life. That means you were saved for more than just eternity, church. You were saved for this present world also. You were saved for more than just the future life with God. That's important. That's monumental. That's huge, right? But there's more than that. You were saved to walk in newness of life. So eternity salvation, that's a benefit. A lot of Christians are like, yeah, I got my ticket punched. And then forget about the fact that, yeah, I've got an impact here on this planet as well. So monumental proportion, absolutely, that you're saved for eternity, but it's not the only benefit. What do you get as a result of it? You, for one, get to be a living example to people who are watching you. And people are watching you, whether you know it or not. If they know you're a Christ follower in your neighborhood, in the environment where you work, where you go to school, people are watching you all the time to see, are you different? Is there something different about you? Are you a fragrant aroma? Are you a person I want to be around because Christ has changed you? We get to be living examples. Baptism is part of that. It's just part of the newness of life because it's a new beginning. Let me go with you with that thought of newness of life into verse 5. Verse 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, what's he talking about there? The likeness of his resurrection. In verse 5, we kind of encounter a, a structural language problem. And it affects you, whether you think so or not. When you read that, do you think, is this referring to a future resurrection? Or is he talking about something right now? Something immediate that's present here? Most times, a future tense refers to something that's going to happen in the future. I'm going to be going fishing this summer, right? I'm going to do some fishing. And so I'm looking forward to that. It's something that will happen. It's out there. I can't touch it yet. And if my schedule isn't altered, it's going to happen. In the same way, when we think of future tense words, we think of something future. So Paul uses future tense. He says, we shall also be. Most times that means something future. But occasionally in the Bible, you find what appears to be future tense that has an immediate effect, that has an inevitable outcome. 
Let me give you an example of that. Jesus' resurrection had an inevitable outcome, an immediate effect. Peter and John arrive on Easter morning. They look in the tomb. The stone has been rolled away. And what do they see? An empty tomb. All they see are grave clothes rolled up, laying on the stone where Jesus was. But the body's gone. The inevitable effect is the tomb is empty because Jesus has been resurrected. What Paul's doing here is he's connecting the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the immediacy of it, with the immediacy of your new life. It's available now. So verse 5 is talking about your spiritual resurrection, something that happens instantaneously, the resurrection to new life. It's the inevitable outcome of aligning yourself with Jesus. If I've lost you on that, let me show you an example in Ephesians chapter 2 where he talks about present tense, even though it's future. Ephesians 2.4 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together, see there's present tense, with Christ, by grace you have been saved, verse 6, present tense, and raised us up with him, present tense, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So here's the reality. Even though it's future, God speaks of it as though it already is a reality because God sees you as already with him because God exists outside of time. We are bound by time. God sees you as already with him. It's that certain. So this new life that we have is because of this historical action. We have been united with him in death, and we've been united with him in the resurrection. Are we together on that? Like six of you are. Okay. All right. I I did this last night and in the 915 service, and I lost people. So let me bring clarity back to this for you, uh, back to you in this phrase, united with. Uh, Look at verse five real closely, and you see the phrase, united with. Maybe if you have your Bibles open, you want to circle that phrase, united with. And here's why Paul has borrowed from the agricultural world, he's reached back into an ancient archaeological, ancient agricultural term by using this term united with and it literally means to be grown together or fused into one when I grew up in the the west side of Michigan I grew up on the lake shore of Lake Michigan and my grandfather had lots of cherry trees on his property and grandpa liked to experiment with the fruit trees that he had so he would take various species of fruit and he would graft the branches together to force them to grow together. The same tree yielding two different types of species, right? You're understanding uh, what grafting is. This is the exact same term that Paul is using here. You see this Greek word on the screen, symphutos. It's talking about by force, something has been planted together. When he uses the term united with, that's the term right there. God has established a fusing a grafting together, and it's supernatural. It is the very basis of sanctification in your life. In other words, Jesus is visible in you even though you're an individual person, even though you are a unique individuality, you've been grafted together with God and it happened instantaneously, supernaturally. God brought you together with Jesus and you have been joined together with him in one. So individuals could accurately say to you, I see Jesus in you. Wouldn't that be a cool phrase to hear your friend say to you? I see Jesus in you. You could say that to every single person getting baptized this morning. Every person who's stepping into the tank is saying, I yield. 
I'm obeying Christ. I'm identifying myself. We could say that to each other because you held up the cup and the, the bread this morning. You witnessed. And individuals could say, I see Jesus in you because God grafted you together. It's a great way for us to speak to each other as members of the church, as part of the body of Jesus Christ. I see Jesus in your actions. So we've been united with him in death. And verse 5 also says we've been united with him in his resurrection, meaning this. As Jesus was raised as champion, as victor over death, so we are also raised with him victorious. We've been set free from the bondage of sin over us. You're no longer condemned to live a life void of purpose, either in eternity or here on this present planet, because God has set you free. So just as Jesus' resurrection followed his impaling, his crucifixion, New life follows for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. So I said it this way last week. As sin characterized your old way of life, righteousness now characterizes your new way of life. I gave you five pointers on that. I'm going to give them to you again because I want to make sure you get them down. I gave it to you last week. Here they are again. Here's some descriptions of your new spiritual life. God says, I've given you a new heart. He says, I've also given you a new spirit. And I've given you a new song. Cool thought, right? God's given you a new song to sing. And he says, I've got a new name for you. We talked about that last week. God says, I've got a name for you that no one else knows. I'm going to give it to you in eternity. And that name is going to match your character and your identity in me. So because of all those things, we're also told that we're a new creation in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, Scripture says, you better walk in it because your walk, your newness of life, it's evidence for others to see that you are in Jesus Christ. Let me finish out verse 6 with you, and then we're going to watch these individuals get baptized. It says this in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. Uh, verse 6 starts out with this phrase, Knowing this, meaning you know this new hope. He's writing to the church at Rome, you know this, Christians. Knowing this, I want to circle back around to that common thought. He's assuming people know something here. Watch now, Paul's language is becoming sharper and more focused. In verse 5, it was, you're united with him in death. And that's translating now over to, you have been crucified with Christ. You have crucified your old self. Earlier, I put Galatians 2.20 on the screen. I want you to see it again just to remind you. I have been impaled with Jesus. I've been crucified with him. Now, combine those thoughts together about the crucifixion of the old self, and he's combining these two ideas together. He says there's a purpose in this. Why? What's the purpose? In order that your body of sin may be done away with, that it might be destroyed. If you happen to have the King James Bible, the word destroyed is used there as opposed to done away with. What's been destroyed here? That old way. It's in your notes, the word cartageo. It's not going to appear on the screen this morning. This cartageo that it's talking about, it's something that has to be abolished. Why? Because it has no purpose anymore. It's completely void of use. On Monday nights at my home, we put all of the trash from the previous week 
into a brown container. It's got a Granger stamp on the side of it, and we wheel it out to the end of the driveway. Well, most Monday nights I remember to do it. Because on Tuesday mornings, the guys are coming, and they're going to haul that canister to the back of their truck. And they're going to put it in the back of their truck, and they're going to haul it away. We don't put recyclable items in there. We don't put items in that brown container that we're going to use again. It may have started out new, but it's been used, and it's old, and it's beat up, and it has no use to us anymore. And so it's going to be hauled to the landfill. That's the thought of this word, kartageo. It's, it's landfill material. Your old life is useless to you. If you have your Bibles open, let your eyes just drift up to chapter 7 and verse 2. And in chapter 7, you find Paul using the same word again, although it won't appear like it in your English language. He's talking about a woman whose husband has died, and he uses the term loosed. That's the word kartageo also. Here's the association for putting the word in there. A woman has had the death of her husband occur in her life. And under the law, she was bound to her husband when he was alive. But when he dies, she is loosed from the law, and she's free to marry again. What's happened? There's a change in the relationship. Something has happened. Is the law still in place? Yeah, the law is still in place. People are still legally married, but in her case, it has no authority over her. No authority over the woman because her husband is gone. The relationship has changed. Your new life in Jesus Christ, church, is not a recycled life, something to be made over again. Scripture says it's a brand new life. Why? Because you've been released from the old. Cartageo, it's been hauled away to the landfill. It's of no value to you anymore. Your old life has died. So in God's sight, in God's mind, in his view of you, you were joined to Jesus at the cross. Don't let the time element disrupt your thinking. We also said in chapter 5 of Romans that in Adam all sinned. We associated ourselves with an action that man took upon himself way back thousands of years ago when sin entered the world. In the same way, if we could be associated with Adam like in chapter 5, we're also associated equally. It's very true to say we died to sin when Jesus did something historically at the cross. See, at this stage in Paul's teaching, here's what he's doing. He's simply saying, this is our position as God sees it. Now, I told you I wanted to circle back to that phrase in verse 6, knowing this, where Paul just says to the church, you know this. It's common knowledge. In Jesus, you are not the same people. You have a new life. Therefore, you have a new heart meaning you have new strength and you have new wisdom and you have a new hope. So it's accurate to say you are the redeemed of the Lord. You are righteous. You're holy. But you're still incarcerated in this body of flesh. Okay, stop watching the baptism people. Stay with me here. Okay? You get to watch them all you want in five minutes. Okay, Hang with me on this. You're new you're redeemed, you're holy, but you're still incarcerated in this body, right? God has not taken you to eternity yet. You haven't been given a glorified body. You're still trapped here on earth, incarcerated in this flesh. 
See, there's a reality of this new life that you've been given. This new life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's actually measurable. You can measure it and check yourself. Is this real of me? Is this true of who I am? Because every maturing Christian comes to the understanding that the more that you grow in Jesus Christ, the more aware you are of sin. You tracking with me? The more you grow, the greater you understand God's calling on your life, the more you understand how pervasive sin is and how dark it is upon this world. So the reality of this new life is you become more and more and more and more and more aware of who you are. You become more aware of sin and its pervasiveness. So to combat the reality that we are the redeemed, but we're incarcerated in this body of flesh, which is prone to fallenness, we get admonished. Well, by the time we get to verse 19, it might take us till August to get there, but by the time you get to verse 19, you find Paul admonishing the church. He writes it this way in verse 19, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now, pay attention, something's changed, something happened, so now present your members, your body, as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. See, Romans 6 is simply saying, the old is gone. The old way of life is passed away. Then live out the reality of your new life. Walk that way. Here's the final component of what we're going to look at. It's verse 7. It has to do with this person dying and being freed from sin. That's the way he stated it. He who has died is freed from sin. The word freed is a legal term. I'm going to ask you on three to say with me, I am free. One, two, three. I am free. That the term that he has borrowed comes from the legal world. A person who stands before a judge, and, and that person literally is guilty, and the judge can pass sentence to send the person away, but for some reason the judge has exonerated that individual and freed them no longer held under the accusation. Paul uses that same word here. He who has died is freed from sin. He's playing on an ancient rabbinic principle. Paul grew up in the school of rabbis. He understood what it was to be a rabbi. The ancient rabbinic principle is this. When a man is dead, he's freed from being under the law. He doesn't have to fulfill it anymore because he's not alive to fulfill it. The old life that you used to have is rendered inoperative. It's been hauled to the landfill in God's view. Paul's not describing an experience here. He's stating a fact. If you belong to Jesus, this is true of you. So here's the reality. Death has now, for the believer, become your agent of delivery. You need to hear that again? Death has become your agent of delivery. While you may know individuals who are afraid of death, they live in fear of it, they don't want to face it, God says, I've made, I've made death your slave because death has become your agent of delivery. Follow this thought with me. Satan has an objective, and his objective is to kill and annihilate. That is his one goal. Jesus said that Satan brought sin into this world where there was no sin, he introduced it. He is the one in rebellion against God. Jesus called him the father of lies, meaning he originated it all. He originated sin and rebellion against God. So wherever you find sin, 
you find death. It's the ultimate outcome. It is the objective of sin, is to produce death. So Satan's objective is to destroy. That's why Peter wrote what he did in 1 Peter 5. He says, Satan, he's like a lion. He goes around roaring, seeking whom he can devour. He wants to destroy. It is the reason that you find in the Bible when God finally throws Satan chained into the lake of fire, God also throws sin and death there with him because they all go hand in hand. But until then, on this fallen planet that we live on, death fulfills the demand of sin. It is the outcome that it seeks. However, if you are in Jesus Christ, death now serves you as a slave. Death actually becomes your agent of delivery. You get the beautiful picture of that with the individual being lowered into the water and brought back up to the newness of life. Death does something remarkable. It opens the way for resurrection. God has made it his servant. That's how we find the new life. That's why Paul writes in verse 7, He who has died, that one is freed from sin. Resurrection is beyond the power of death. Resurrection is victor over death. And resurrection, hear me on this church, resurrection has a name. Its name is Jesus Christ. That's why he has power over death because death can't touch resurrection. So in John chapter 11, you find a very old John writing, I remember, I remember when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Even if someone dies, he will live for the one who believes in me. Even more specific than that, Jesus gives us an insight in Revelation. This week back on Tuesday, I was haunted by Revelation chapter 1. In the moment that I read John chapter 11, God snapped my mind to attention with the verse that you see on the screen in Revelation chapter 1. And I'll use this word, I was terrorized by it because I immediately pictured what happened to John. We're told in Scripture that he saw Jesus alive in the flesh before him, and as a result of it, he fell on his face and fainted as a dead man, face plant into the beach sand on the island of Patmos. He's experiencing what we know as the book of Revelation, writing things about Jesus. And when he encountered the living God, He said, even though I was a dead man laying in the sand, Jesus reached out and put his hand on my shoulder, and this is what he said to me. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead. Catching the impact of that? The Savior who died, but the God who raised him again, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And check the outcome. And as a result, the outcome is this. I have the keys of death and hell. Do you find yourself in the place this morning where you're wondering what this is all about? Do you want to live forevermore? Do you want to live with Jesus I I don't want to assume that everybody here in an auditorium with this many people is already a believer. So I have to ask you the question, do you want to put your past behind you? And do you want to live forevermore with Jesus? That's a personal decision between you and God. 
Only you know if you feel that sense of the tugging of the Holy Spirit upon you right now. If you've never dealt with that issue, I'm going to encourage you to do something. At the end of the service, on the back table, in a brown wooden table, I wrote a note for you. It, it simply says on the envelope, next steps. Grab one of those on your way out. If you're wondering, what do I do? What do I do with this information? How do I respond to this? If you're looking for that new beginning, grab one of those envelopes. Read it when you get home. If you want to talk about it, I'd be honored to do that with you. What we're about to watch now, though, are individuals who have already made that decision. They recognize who Jesus is, and they say, I am willing to state for the public, I have a new beginning in Jesus Christ. This is really fun for us to watch. We love to celebrate baptisms, right, New Hope? It's fun to do, okay? So what I want to do is pray with you for what we just studied, that God would seal it in our hearts, but also we're going to lift up these individuals in prayer for their witness. Would you join me in that? Let's do it together. Father, I thank you for what we've just examined, how your Holy Spirit has taught us and you've guided us. We ask that you allow us not to quickly forget it, that it wouldn't escape our mind. God, where you've dealt with us and where you're pushing on issues in our heart, or maybe there's a sin issue that you've really pushed on us about, Father, I pray that that would not escape by the time we hit the car in the parking lot, but rather that it would stay with us and we would deal with it between ourselves and you. For these individuals who are about to step into the waters of baptism, God, I ask that um, you would use it once again as a reminder of this newness of life that we know, the celebration of what you've done for us. Praise you, God, in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen.